Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And welcome to the History of England, episode 322, Europe 12, the early 17th century. And this episode is going to focus on religion and science. Now, while we're on the subject of walruses and indeed carpenters, it's time to talk about the wider European context for the next stage of the history of England. And time to stop warbling on about, I don't know, shoes, ships, sealing wax, cabbages and all that. And focus on the kings once more. Many moons have gone by since we had some History of Europe episodes. In fact, I seem to remember writing part of the last one years ago in the early hours in a B&B in North Wales before Henry woke up and we could start the days walking along Offa's Dyke. Happy days. In such furnaces are the words of history forged. Anyway, enough of that hyperbole. These episodes cause me an inordinate level of pain and grief, actually, normally so anyway, because they're quite impossible, really. One week, there I am talking about the petty sessions in small English county towns, and the next we have four and a half seconds on the rise or otherwise of absolutism, followed by 35 seconds on the death of millions in the Thirty Years' War. It is impossible to do it justice. Now, more and more, as we advance tortoise-like towards the foothills of modernity, Europe and indeed the world becomes ever more interconnected and our story will include that on the history of England. However, I do like you to have a glimpse of the world in which England operated, even if it's only a peep through the warped boards of a Suffolk door. So I'm going to try and cover the earlier part of the 17th century of Europe for you, 
rather excluding England, Wales and Scotland and Ireland, of course, because we'll cover all that in greater detail. I am not suggesting for a moment that England isn't part of Europe, because, of course, Brexit or no Brexit, it was, is and ever shall be. The plan is, I am afraid, to avoid the horror of unreasonable compression that I mentioned. So I'm going to take four episodes to talk about Europe in the first, let's say, two-thirds of the 17th century. Yes, you heard correctly, that is four episodes. Today, I thought some themes of religion, witchcraft and a smidge of science. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about the nation-state and absolutism and start the rounds through the various nations, focusing on Eastern Europe first, since, a bit like having the surname Walker, they normally get called up to the front right at the end. So we'll give them a first blast this time. We'll talk a little about the economics of the 17th century too. Then episode three is the biggie, the Dutch Golden Age, the progress of European colonisation and the brutality that was the Thirty Years' War. Then we'll have a bit of fun with an interview with Zach Twamley of this parish. Zach has written a book on the Thirty Years' War and is now branching out into novels. As you can see, we will talk about some themes, the sort of general things for which the period is known. Right at the top of the list, we should talk about religion. The next stage in the confessionalisation of Europe, the strength of the Counter-Reformation, which finally began to turn the tide of Protestantism, the spread of which at one stage had begun to look alarmingly unstoppable. We will, as I said, talk about the Thirty Years' War in a later episode, but it's worth saying here that the conflagration which used to be seen as a religious war is now seen very differently. As much about the continuation of the struggle between France and the Empire and other secular territorial ambitions as it was about religion. Nonetheless, it's undeniable that religion played a big part, and Germany had been part of the battleground between Protestantism and Catholicism, and the Treaty of Augsburg in 1555 had not resolved the conflict. Protestantism had continued to spread until the War of Cologne from 1583 proved the first time that the Protestantization of an ecclesiastical territory in Germany had been stopped. And from the war, the Catholic cause took heart. And they had, staunchly on their side, the Habsburgs, whether in Spain or in the Empire in Germany. And in areas like Austria, Catholicism was re-established, and of course in Bohemia in the Thirty Years' War. But the chaos of the war that followed resolved little, in fact. By the end of it, still no one believed that religious uniformity was any less critical for a country to be effective, with the possible exception of the Dutch Republic. All everyone reluctantly conceded was that Europe could no longer hope to be religiously uniform across its breadth. The unified Christendom was dead. The best that could be hoped for was that states didn't fight each other over religion. So, next time we come back to the topic, prepare for continuing religious persecution as states sought in vain to extirpate heresy, although with some success in France, of course, when the Huguenots were all expelled. Religious disputes 
were not just about the continuing confessional borders. Within the Reformed and Catholic religion, there were also very significant debates too, which had a wider impact. So, in the Spanish Netherlands, the Bishop of Ypres, Cornelius Janssen, became worried that the Catholic Church was too focused on monetary concerns and outward forms, and wrote of the need for personal holiness. Jansenism became a popular movement, proposing greater lay involvement in church services, greater attention to inflexible moral principles, but reducing the role of confessors and other clergy over their congregations. Now, Jansenism was popular with the philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal, but it was not popular with successive popes who published more than one bull of condemnation. Now, look, of course, it's impossible, surely, to mention Pascal without mentioning his famous attempt to prove that belief in God was perfectly rational. Because, look, if you believe in her, it could do you no harm if she did exist. And so, you might as well. That tale was first told to me by one B.O. Fernandez, our maths teacher and tennis coach, I guess. It came as a shock to learn, though, that Pascal was in fact a very devout Christian because the tale always sounded a bit cynical to me, sort of linked to his theories of probability somehow. Anyway, a big hand for Blaise Pascal, everyone. Give it up. Probably more directly relevant to the story of England and Scotland were the works of another theologian from the Low Countries, Jacobus Arminius. Arminius and his followers created a remonstrance to the Synod of Dort in the Dutch Republic in 1610, hence the name of his followers, the Remonstrants. Though since they were also known as Arminians, I should probably not have told you that, since it's one extra bit of information you don't need, and less, as you know, is more. So, we shall strike the word Remonstrants from the record. Anyway, Arminius argued against the purity of the doctrine of predestination and argued that people could affect whether or not they were saved. This produced the eminently predictable Barney within the Reformed Church since predestination had been a sort of core, widely agreed article of faith which tied together all the different types of Reformed religion. Initially, the Dutch Synod took a hard, conservative line and tried to stamp out the remonstrance ideas, but after 20 years of arguing and pinching each other, the States-General in 1631 decreed that a range of Calvinist opinion was allowable on its path to the famous levels of religious toleration that arguably contributed towards the Dutch Golden Age, as I believe I'm not supposed to call it anymore. Interestingly, from that point, the secular authorities in the Republic took far less interest in the what was going on in the world of theological shenanigizing, and they just let the religious get on with it. This contrasts very much with the approach in Germany. Here in Germany, secular Lutheran princes cast a keen and jealous eye over the intricacies of church operation. And in looking throughout Europe, it's worth remembering that not all secular governors now saw intervention as their role, but some continued to. Just to finish the Arminius thing, though, it is particularly important for Scotland and England because a famous Arminian was Archbishop Lord, Charles I's chum. 
who tied the belief up with a whole load of stuff about the formalities of church services that drove Puritans up the wall and would famously lead to conflict. Anyway, that is for another day. Science, too, was a subject that excited some controversy because the period from the mid-16th to the mid-17th centuries has a surprisingly big reputation, I learn. Now, I must admit, I put it a century later, but I'm told this is a period known as the Scientific Revolution. Well, you could have blown me down with a feather. After all, the astrologer and alchemist are still all over the place. We talked about John Dee, for example, on the History of England, a very influential chap. But, true enough, I read that this is the age of Copernicus, Oh, well, Copernicus died in 1543, but close enough, you know. He was, of course, the son of a German merchant, a loyal Polish subject, apparently expounding Gresham's law that bad money drives out good 30 years before Gresham. But, of course, more than that, he published that the Earth circled the sun, not the other way round, heliocentrism. This seems like such an obvious thing to us now. A bit like realising that the Earth is, of course, flat rather than a sphere, as some of the loony ancients thought. I remember, though, a story from my youthful education, Loughborough being an unacknowledged centre of world learning, of course, a story from Wittgenstein, Ludo, as he was known by the Dons at Cambridge, who overheard a bunch of drunken English football fans booing the past as they tried to push their way into Wembley without tickets and flares up their backsides. Booing the past for being daft enough not to know that the Earth, of course, went round the sun. Or maybe they were students at Cambridge. The story grows in the telling. But anyway, Witters uttered an impressive put-down by asking them what it would have looked like if the sun had, in fact, been circulating the Earth. Well, that shusts them. Good and proper, I can tell you. Ha! Boo to chronological snobbery. It is worth noting that Tycho Brahe, the man with the coolest name in European history, and a brass nose, apparently, vastly famous for his attention to accurate empirical data and overturning the Aristotelian theory of an unchanging universe, even Tycho, an acknowledged genius, rejected the idea of heliocentrism as late as 1601. So look, what's good enough for Tycho is certainly good enough for a wobbly footy fan with a flare up his bottom. Which brings us to Galileo Galilei, who lived from 1542 to 1642, and who must be one of the most famous names, surely, in European history, even more famous than Dean Richards of the Lesser Tigers, though, to be fair, Dean was a better number eight than Galileo. Galileo built on Johann Kepler's explanation of the laws of motion that underlaid Copernicus's theory and discovered that the moon was in fact not a perfect sphere, as everyone had thought under God's celestial sphere theory, and he proceeded to trash the existing theory of perfect spheres. Rather rashly, he caustically described the astronomical language in the Bible as designed for the comprehension of the ignorant, which was considered rude at the time. And in 1616, he was summoned to Rome by the Pope and given a proper dressing down. 
He carried on publishing, though. So much so that famously he was tried by the Inquisition in 1636 and forced to recant. In fine, and I have to say, very English style, he was to mutter, yet it does move, as he went off to spend the rest of his life under house arrest. But I suppose the English approach, actually, would have been to tut and roll his eyes, rather than actually saying anything. Galileo, I understand, was more than a stargazer. He was a generally brilliant physicist, engineer and polymath. And so he also studied the mechanical processes of the body, how the pores secreted, how the mouth and stomach digested, how blood flowed through the blood vessels. Which brings us, of course, to William Harvey, 1578-1657, who demonstrated that the veins and arteries are one integrated system, with the same blood being pumped throughout the body by the heart. I am now rushing desperately through vast numbers of famous people. Rationalist philosopher René Descartes, who uttered that line, you know the one I mean, emphasised also a mechanistic view of the world. And Francis Bacon, who found time when not being a chancellor, apologist for absolutism and a royal suck-up, was described as the father of the scientific method that knowledge should proceed by orderly and systematic experimentation and by inductions based on experimental data. There is no way, of course, to sum up all of these brilliant people, who I assume are well known to all of you. But it is maybe a major theme that the world, from human body to the movement of the spheres, became seen in this period as a mechanical system, composed of machines or subsystems, maybe, that could be investigated and understood we stand at a bit of a crossroads, though, and crossing the road would not be an easy process. There were many stingers in the path. The idea of the human body as a system would be fought in the next century by the vitalists, some of whom asserted the importance of the soul as a life force or life principle. It's also interesting to note that when a group of experimental philosophers, as they called themselves, met in England during the civil wars, led by Dr Wilkins and Robert Boyle, and formed the Invisible College in Oxford, which would be a forerunner of the Royal Society, included a number of magicians. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Which seems to lead in a straight line to talking about witchcraft, because it really is a feature of the time. Now, in doing this, I am conscious of another, yet another, personal failure. I really meant to do an episode just on witchcraft, but that, like Joseph's Technicolor Dreamcoat, appears to be fading from view. So, let me do a sort of summary here. Maybe I'll come back to it. But there are very excellent podcasts available if you have a passion for the subject, notably, I may say, The History of Witchcraft by Sam Hume. Okay, so, 
witchcraft. I don't know about you, but when I came to this subject, I had some very clear preconceptions about witchcraft. And I have to say, on the truthometer I have in the shed, I scored very low scores. Firstly, obviously, witchcraft persecutions were a feature of the Middle Ages, just like, you know, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Nope, much stronger in the early modern era. Secondly, it was all obviously caused by the patriarchy and misogyny, which is why witches were all women. Well, maybe a little closer, but still nope. However many memes continue to suggest that on the intertubes. Thirdly, it was a clearly a Protestant thing, Puritans and all that. Well, no, also as it happens, Catholic and Protestants both indulged. Fourthly, once you were accused, you were toast, also wrong. In fact, even the famous witch hunter, James VI of Scotland, turned more to uncovering false accusations as he got older. And finally, the worst witch finder was Vincent Price. Also not true. I had yet to hear about the burning Bishop of Banberg or Benedict Karpzov, who claimed with some smugness that he had procured the death of 20,000 witches. What is clear, though, is that as a topic it deserves much more than I am giving it. Although hysterical estimates of 9 million women accused in Europe have been nailed as bonkers, this is something which might have ruined as many lives as many of the competing man-made disasters of European history. Estimates are hard because records often don't survive, but current estimates of the number of accused between 1400 and 1750 hang at around 100,000 up to a top of 200,000, and that somewhere between 40 and 60,000 were actually executed. It's worth noting that being convicted, even if not executed, was also very serious. People were ostracised, whipped, excluded, almost as bad in many cases as actually being executed. So, the whole thing must still have been a persistent terror, especially when there was a mass panic on, and the mania worked itself up. In Elvarden in Germany, for example, 400 people were executed between 1611 and 1618. Over 100 were accused in North Berwick in Scotland in 1590. There were panics in eastern France and southern Germany in the 1570s, 1590s, 1610s and 1660s, reaching at times all the way up to Sweden. And of course there was Matthew Hopkins, self-appointed witchfinder general in 1644 in Essex, as immortalised by Vincent Price. But there, the idea of unity ends. I mean, there are common themes about witchcraft, obviously, but there are also a vast number of variations and differences. Things were different according to region and timing, which affected who was accused, how many were accused, what percentage were convicted, how their trial was carried out, and whether or not torture was used, how the convicted were executed. In general, the average across Europe was 0.5 executions per thousand of the population, but that hides wide differences. Much higher for the Holy Roman Empire, for example, sort of broadly Germany, and indeed in Scotland, where in a population of about a million, two and a half thousand people were executed. Other areas were much lower, so in England and Wales, about 
2,000 people were accused and only 500 witches were executed in a population of about 4 million, I say only. In Portugal, Spain and Italy, the numbers were tiny because the attitude towards witchcraft was different. The Inquisition tended to see the accusations as a matter of ignorance and they usually dismissed cases. The need they perceived was not for punishment, but for education. In the Holy Roman Empire, meanwhile, it seems to have been the atomized central authority that led to such large numbers. By and large, central authority tended to be sceptical about witchcraft. So, as mentioned before, James VI of Scotland might be seen as an exception to this rule, author of a book on demonology, personally involved in the North Berwick witch trials. But by the end of his reign, he seems also to have become very much more sceptical and his interventions often led to the accused being freed rather than convicted. So there were two broad traditions in the perception of witchcraft at the time. The first and the oldest was maleficium, the use of witchcraft to do others harm, curdle the milk, blight a crop, injure a cow, or in the Python idiom, turn someone into a newt, though I don't think there are in fact many examples of that. But in the late Middle Ages, a new strain of thought began to enter the ring, demonology, and a belief that witches had made a pact with the devil. This new strand was driven by theologians and intellectual elites and led to beliefs that we're familiar with. Witches flying around on broomsticks, meetings in covens, weird dances and all that sort of thing. So witches, by this philosophy, were no longer people who used magic to get what they wanted, but who used magic to help the devil to get what she wanted. In many areas where this philosophy took hold, panic was sharper and heightened. Some even believed that witches were part of an international conspiracy to overthrow Christendom. The earliest trials involving diabolical heresy of this type were in the 1430s in the area around Lake Geneva in Switzerland and France. And in 1484, Pope Innocent VIII authorised two German Dominicans, Heinrich Kramer and Jakob Sprenger, to hunt witches in nearby areas of southern Germany. Kramer oversaw the trial and execution of several groups, all of them women, but the local authorities objected to his use of torture and his extreme views on the power of witches, and so they banished him. Kramer took his exile as an opportunity to write that most famous of witchcraft books, the Malleus Maleficorum, in 1486. Now, the Malleus drips with misogyny as well as demonology, and its influence spread the use of the demonology approach to witch hunts. In areas where it took hold, witch crazes were much more common. So in areas like Finland, Iceland, Estonia and Russia, where it never took hold, there were no large-scale crazes at all. Witch hunts might also be more gender neutral away from the demonology approach. Generally speaking, about 75% of those accused across Europe were women, and in Scotland that rose to about 85%. In Estonia and Iceland, about half of them were men. It used to be thought that the type of legal background, process and approach had a big impact on the severity of witch hunts. So that is to say that where an inquisitorial procedure existed based on Roman law, witch hunts were much worse 
and were driven by elites determined to root out witches. Now, there does seem to be some justification for this in England, where jurors were used. In 1604, James VI actually extended the Elizabethan witchcraft laws of 1563 to include demonology-related accusations. But ironically, convictions fell because it was more difficult to prove to a jury that old Nick was involved. However, the link between Roman law and conviction rates is a bit weak. Jurors were used in Denmark, for example, with no mitigating impact. Inquisitors were used in Portugal, Italy and Spain, whereas, as we've seen, the conviction rate was very low indeed. Attitude was much more important. In England, the belief in demonology and pact with the devil was weak and magistrates sceptical. Accusations all had to go through the court system, which was a secular system, not a religious one. So secular magistrates were very much involved to exercise their scepticism. Accordingly, in England, only 25% of those accused were actually convicted and executed. Where demonic beliefs were strong, conviction rates were much higher. In the Pays de Vaux in France, the conviction rate was 90%. In Germany, when asked how a victim might avoid execution, one commentator just could not think of a way that they might do so. The type of legal system, though, did have an impact on the use of torture and the danger of individual convictions and accusations turning into panics. Under English common law, torture was not allowed, and so in England torture was very rarely used. In inquisitorial systems, a confession was required before conviction. Now, that was designed to protect the innocent, but unfortunately, rather than doing that, it encouraged the use of torture, both to extract the required confession, but critically to get the accused to name other guilty people. So, torture, such as racking or burning by a candle, were used until the Inquisitor was convinced that sufficient beans had been spilled. So again, leading to a greater extent of further accusations. There was a mechanism whereby individual accusations could snowball into a craze. In Germany in particular, in the prince bishoprics, the civil authority was also a church member, whether Catholic, Lutheran or Calvinist. So there was little to stand between the accused and the sword of the magistrate. There are true horrors where such things occurred. Just one example. The Catholic prince bishop of Bamberg in the 1620s had become very suspicious about his chancellor, who showed distressing levels of leniency in pursuing witches. So, he had him accused. Said chancellor was tried, and before he was burned, he was also tortured. One of the accomplices, whose name the chancellor screamed out in his agony, was Johann Julius, a burgomeister who smuggled out a note from prison to his daughter. My dearest daughter... It is all falsehood and invention, so help me God. They never cease to torture until one says something. If God sends no means of bringing the truth to light, our whole kindred will be burned. The Prince Bishop, it is said, possessed a purpose-built witch house with ensuite torture chamber covered with biblical texts. 
he is said to have burned 600 people. It's worth noting that not all witches were burned. That varied again according to region. They were burned in Germany, hanged in England, burned in Scotland, but strangled first. It's all pretty grisly. We should turn then to who was accused. And unsurprisingly, given that the overwhelmingly high proportion of those accused and convicted were women, it is on women where the research has focused. And my misconceptions about why women were so predominant was probably derived from the early work on witchcraft by radical feminist authors. These narratives portrayed witch hunts as a brutal means by which the patriarchy exerted control over women and to curb the perceived threat posed to male dominance by women's supposedly rapacious sexuality. They saw hatred of women, misogyny, as the cause of witch hunts and described a top-down approach. The movement also led to a myth of witches as wise women and pagan priestesses persecuted by the church, and they talked about massive numbers, nine million accusations, for example. So, historians have been most disapproving of these interpretations. I may not be going too far to use the word scorn, for the idea that witch-hunting was a euphemism for woman-hunting. They cite an over-reliance on the Malleus Maleficarum, which is indeed deeply misogynistic. Historians accuse radical feminist commentators of unwillingness to actually engage in the records of witch trials and a vast exaggeration of numbers. In addition, there's no evidence of the survival of pagan cults. Finally, an important point to make is that witch prosecutions and accusations were very rarely initiated top-down. Almost all of them had to be initiated by individuals within the community. Ordinary villagers may be your neighbour. The rejection of radical feminist views by historians could not obscure the fact, however, that there's no doubt that witch prosecutions were deeply gendered and that misogyny played a part in that. Here, for a demonstration of that, is the Malleus Maleficium on its theory about why women were more susceptible to the devil's wiles. Now, take a deep breath before you listen, and afterwards count to, say, a hundred, possibly a thousand, and repeat to yourself, the past is a foreign country, they did things differently there. As for the first question, why a greater number of witches is found in the fragile feminine sex than amongst men, the first reason is that they are much more credulous and since the chief aim of the devil is to corrupt faith, therefore he attacks them. The second reason is that women are naturally more impressionable. And the third reason is that they have slippery tongues and are unable to conceal from their fellow women those things by which the evil arts they know. But the natural reason is that she is more carnal than a man as is clear from her many carnal abominations. Conclude, all witchcraft comes from carnal lust, which is in women insatiable. So, on-the-nose misogyny in a patriarchal society was a course for the focus on women. 
However, demonologists were also quite capable of conceiving men as witches too, 20-30% to 30% of them overall. So, there have to be other things going on. In England, Macfarlane and the evidently revered Keith Thomas actually explained accusations in the context of requests for material assistance made by poorer villagers. Now, in the context of the economic crisis of the 16th and early 17th centuries, many wealthy villagers might turn down those informal requests, figuring that their contributions to the poor law had met their social obligations. But it went against the tradition of charity, and so in their guilt they feared the rejected would seek vengeance. The most economically vulnerable, most likely to ask for a few quid to make them to help them last to the end of the week, were often older single women, which has a strong similarity with the profile of prosecutions. This is a popular theory amongst historians, however there are others. Lyndall Roper identified that older women were sometimes overrepresented because they were past child-rearing age, in a world where fertility was revered. So, other younger women worried that they would be the target of their envy and hostility. And it's true to say that many accusers in witchcraft trials were indeed women. Roper also argued that older women physically were much more imagined as the popular image of witches. Robin Briggs also presented another reason why older women were targeted, because they were more likely to be widowed and therefore vulnerable to accusations. In some places, 60% of the women accused were widows. They may have acquired their reputation for witchcraft while married and when they were less defenceless. Another theory from Christine Lana relied on research in Scotland and identified a theme of women who broke social stereotypes. She described the typical Scottish witch as a married, middle-aged woman of the lower peasant class with a sharp tongue and a filthy temper. Not only did this reflect the breaking of social rules, it could also be about power. Diane Perkis suggested that worries about housewifery and motherhood led to women accusing other women, female neighbours they thought threatened their domestic reputation. So, many and varied reasons explain why women were so overrepresented. It's interesting to ask, then, why men were also accused. And again, there's a range of reasons. In Norway, the shaman of the Sami people were very vulnerable. In Normandy, it was herdsmen. And there's a theme here of mobile males, especially vagrants, feared as outsiders, threats to the social order. Or again, it could be where men failed to live up to their social norms and the personal control required of men as heads of household. They might have had an affair or committed a crime, for example. They also got drawn in during mass panics when the tortured thrashed about handing out accusations to just make the pain stop. As to why witch trials petered out, well, there's a question for you. No one seems very sure. There were always pressures acting against witch trials, it has to be said, and a strong sceptical tradition. The German physician Johann Weyer, 
the English author Reginald Scott and the Jesuit Frederick Spey, for example, wrote widely against witchcraft persecutions. The reasons for scepticism varied. In England, the idea that the devil could ever assume physical form was much weaker among thinkers, which nicely meets with the traditional English view of themselves as practical, down-to-earth people not given to flights of fancy. I am here put in mind of an anecdote about a friend's uncle, who shall remain nameless, when an older member of his family had a serious, though thankfully temporary, mental health problem. She wrapped herself in aluminium foil and convinced herself that the neighbours were using a ray gun against her. Obviously, this would be a deeply upsetting situation, but the response of the uncle, as she did make us laugh a bit. Don't be ridiculous, June, he snapped. How could your neighbours afford a ray gun? Down to earth, you see. Not necessarily empathetic, but down to earth. Others doubted that the devil was really forming pacts. Others focused on process. I'm worried about whether torture could ever yield truthful confessions. Civil authorities had also disliked and mistrusted the chaos of witch crazes. Notably, it's not necessarily anything to do with doubts about the existence of the devil or even witchcraft, or at least not at the popular level. But elites began to sneer at these beliefs. Elites began to see them as superstition and the results of poor education. Anyway, by the end of the 16th century... Prosecutions for witchcraft were already difficult in the Netherlands, Bavaria and the area under the jurisdiction of the Parlement of Paris, although there was a splurge in the later 17th centuries in the Nordic countries. But the last official execution for witchcraft in England was in 1682, and by then trials were increasingly rare, even in the Holy Roman Empire. Witchcraft trials were prohibited in France in 1682, England in 1736, Austria in 1755 and Hungary in 1768. Right, that is where we shall finally end this episode on Europe. Part two is in a week's time then. See you all there to talk of the nation-state and the rise of absolutism. Was it really such a thing or have we all got overexcited about it all? Sorry about the voice today. And thank you for all your comments and iTunes reviews. I really have loved them and appreciate the time you take. Good luck and have a great week wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.